You're listening to the Central City Assembly podcast. We're dedicated to creating and sharing content that magnifies and multiplies Jesus for the glory of God and the good of our city and helps you grow in your love for him. Be sure to subscribe and share this podcast with someone who you think will be encouraged by it. Enjoy this episode and may you be filled with the love of God the Father. I'm sure that you're familiar with the term YOLO, YOLO, Y-O-L-O. It's an acronym that stands for you only live once. I don't know if that's still a a popular phrase anymore, uh, but for a while I heard people saying it a lot. Raise your hand if you've heard that term or you've used that term personally before. Let me hear you YOLO, YOLO, right? Okay. Um, Well, uh, it's wrong. It's wrong, okay? And it's a, it's a dumb phrase. I'll just be honest with you. I have some problems with it, okay? Because listen, uh, you live every single day, don't you? But you only die once, right? And so it should be YODO, Y-O-D-O. You only die once, okay? And listen, YOLO, it doesn't apply to Jesus, does it? Right? No. It, it didn't apply to all of the people in the Bible who were resurrected from the dead either, They got to live twice. Think about it. Um, But Yodo also doesn't apply to them because it's kind of sad. But they also died again as well, right? Um, And if you're a Christian, we believe in this thing called the resurrection of the dead that will happen at the end of time. Uh, And I'm glad that I don't live just once, but I'm going to live again. How about you? Uh, And what about uh, Enoch and Elijah from the Old Testament? Does YOLO apply to them who never experienced death but were taken up into heaven by God without dying? Okay, as you can tell, um, I have some problems with YOLO. Who knew someone could be so passionate about a phrase? Uh, It's not very accurate, and uh, the people who use it often use it to justify risky and reckless behavior. Okay, I know I'm going to regret this decision later, but YOLO, right? YOLO. Um, then you go and, and buy the thing you can't afford. You eat the second helping of food that you know you shouldn't. Uh, you take that one last extra drink, even though it's going to take you over the edge, all in the name of YOLO, right? In the Old Testament, they had the, uh, the idols of Baal and Asherah and Moloch. Today, I think we have the idol of YOLO. That's what I think. Um, well, while I have problems with YOLO, um, I do understand its, its basic premise, and I think you guys do too, right? It's important to live life to the fullest, okay? You don't want to waste your life. Uh, you want it to have meaning and purpose. Um, it, it kind of relates to what we were talking about last week with knowing your moment and not missing your moment. We don't want to miss the moments that God has for every single one of us, right? That could impact our our lives for days to come. Um, Now that I think about it, I wonder if a little bit of YOLO would have helped the the nation of Israel um, not miss their moment when God told them that it's time to enter the promised land. 
okay? They, they get to the promised land, if you remember, and they send 12 guys out to scout out the land to see what it's like. Um, they come back and they give their report saying that the land is amazing. It's incredible. The land is, is fertile, and they bring back these giant grapes to, to prove how amazing the land is. And, and two of the 12, Caleb and Joshua, are like, let's go. Right? This is our moment. Let's enter the promised land. The other 10, though, are like, hold on a minute. Yes, the land is awesome, uh, but the people who live there are mighty. They live in these fortified cities. They're capable warriors ready for battle, and they're all taller than us. That's a real excuse that they give for not entering the promised land. And so 10 people influenced the entire nation of Israel to not enter the promised land. If only YOLO had been invented at that point in time. Right? I wonder what have happened if Caleb and Joshua just dropped a YOLO, right? And they're like, you're right, guys, let's go, YOLO. <laughs> but here's the deal with that moment with Israel. Um, listen, they knew it was their moment. They knew it. It wasn't a problem of knowing whether or not their moment had arrived, like we talked about last week. They knew it was their moment because God had led them to the land and clearly spoken to them saying, now's the time, you guys. Let's go. Okay, the three things that we talked about last week, uh, tuning in to the voice of God, removing yourself from unnecessary distractions, and being situationally aware so that you know your moment has arrived, Israel was doing all three of those things. They were living it out, and yet they still missed their moment. Pastor Kai, are you saying that even if I tune into the voice of God, remove myself from those unnecessary distractions, uh, and I'm situationally aware that I can still miss my moment? Yes, unfortunately, you can. And that's because it's one thing to know your moment, and it's a completely different thing to seize your moment. Completely different. Israel knew without question their moment had arrived, but they failed to seize the moment. What happened? What happened? Well, um, we're not going to look at that moment from Israel's history specifically, but we are going to continue looking at our good old friend, John the Baptist, this morning in Luke chapter 3. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, um, because not only um, did John know his moment had arrived, but he also, we see, effectively seized his moment. Where last week we learned what it took for him to know his moment, this week we're going to look at what it took for him to seize his moment and how we can apply that to our own lives too and make sure that we seize our moments every single time they come. And so the title of today's message is, this is part two from last week, but the title of today's message is Seizing Your Moment. Can we pray one more time before we continue? All right, Joe, we'll go. You and me. Here we go. Father God. We are so grateful for you. You truly are our provider. You have everything that we need um, right in your hands. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to not look to created sources to be provided for, but we would look to you, our creator. God, I pray that even in this area of, of um, knowing our moments, the moments that you've set for us to, to build your kingdom, I pray that you would help us to see that and seizing our moment, help us to see that this comes from you, and they're good. They're good, God. 
And so would you just lead us and guide us this morning again as we continue worshiping you through looking at your word and submitting to your word. Help us to have open hearts and minds to receive all that you have for us today. We thank you, Lord. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're, we're going to read through Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20 again, okay? Um, again, all the way through, and, and we're going to uh, just kind of recap after that um, to catch us up, since again, this is part two. And so here we go, we're going to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. The Word of God says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall, shall see the salvation of God. Verse seven. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. Verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of God. And it's good. Amen. All right, so a quick recap, if you're, you're, you didn't catch the message last week. And by the way, we have a podcast. You can go to YouTube. You can listen to all of our previous messages if you miss a week, all right? Just in case you didn't know that. And so last week, we focused in on only the first two verses, verses one and two, um, because Luke is trying to show us this really important moment in Israel's history. 
Uh, and that moment is that there was no true king in Israel, and there was also no true high priest either. Now, for, for much of Israel's history, um, for much of their history as a nation, they, they usually always had a sitting king and a sitting high priest. And this was supposed to be like a checks and balances, like what we have in the United States, um, to where the king and the priest, they would work together to make sure Israel was following God faithfully um, and kept them out of trouble. But also throughout Israel's history, um, there are always problems with these two uh, offices. Many, many kings were corrupt and evil, and they fell away from God. Many, many high priests were corrupt and fell away from God also. And in turn, the people of God as a whole followed their leadership and fell away from God. And so it was prophesied in the Old Testament that God would one day send the Messiah who would operate perfectly in both of those offices. He would be a perfect king and high priest all in one person. Okay, now fast forward to when John and Jesus are adults and they're entering the public scene to start their ministries. There's no true king and no high priest in Israel. And it's as if God was clearing the stage to make room for his son, Jesus, the Messiah, the true king of kings and our eternal high priest, right? Such a cool and important moment in Israel's history right there. And because John tuned into the voice of God, had removed himself from unnecessary distractions by being out in the wilderness. And because he was situationally aware of what was happening in the world around him, he was able to realize his moment had arrived to be the prophet, the forerunner, the messenger of the Messiah. And so verses one and two are about John knowing and recognizing his moment. But verses three through 20 that we're gonna focus on today are about John seizing his moment. Okay, he doesn't back away and miss his opportunity like the Israelites did, all right? He, he seizes it and he makes the most of his moment. How did he do that? All right, that's what we're gonna explore. Um, and so here are the keys. You want some keys this morning? Okay, here are the keys that help John seize his moment and the keys that will help us do the same. Uh, and if you're taking notes, they all start with M. And so you can just write down your page, six M's, and then fill them in as we go, all right? And so here's the first one. John had a montage. Pastor Kai, so far you're preaching the exact same message that you preached last week. What's going on here? I know it sounds like it, and this is part two after all, um, but do you remember why montages are often employed in literature and film. Remember how he started that last week? Montages often show positive growth and development and even preparation. Remember Rocky and the Eye of the Tiger scene, right? He's training. We got to listen to a little bit of that song last week. And the, the point of a montage that I want us to focus on today is that word preparation. Everybody say preparation. Okay, we've all heard stories of people who seem to have had overnight success, right? Maybe you can think of some of those stories for yourself. Someone has their big moment and they go from being a nobody to all of a sudden being somebody. And so many people today in our culture um, are chasing after and trying to pursue that same kind of overnight success, right? To have their moment. 
Uh, I just need to upload the perfect clip to YouTube or social media and then make it go viral, I'll be set, right? If I can get on Shark Tank and present my million dollar idea, I'll be set for life. Okay, I just need to get noticed by the right people so I can get into that, the movie and the, the music industry. Okay, but listen, I hope this isn't totally earth shattering for you, uh, but overnight success is an illusion. Yes. It's false. It's not real. You see, all we typically see is the overnight success headlines, right? But what we don't see and what isn't always talked about are the years of preparation that often came before that moment. There's nobody who has zero skills and zero talent and zero ability who goes from nobody to somebody in one moment. It just doesn't happen. Okay, listen, everyone should go and read the books, Outliers and David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. Okay, go and read those books. Um, what's cool about Malcolm Gladwell is that when he wrote Outliers, he wasn't a follower of Jesus. Um, he was pretty secular. But then as he was doing his research for David and Goliath, he found faith and he became a follower of Jesus. And it's really cool. Right? In his books, he attempts to, to demystify overnight success stories by showing how, how many successful people, they may have been in the right place and the right time to have their moment, but he researches and shows how they also spent thousands and thousands of hours practicing their crafts and their skills. Even David, right? David wasn't just some kid like Dennis the Menace with the slingshot. That's sometimes how we picture him, right? That, that's not what he was, right? That, that with the slingshot and just through faith and divine interaction, he happened to kill Goliath. No, David was a skilled slinger, yeah. a slinger as I'm slinging spit. Did you see that? That was cool. Um, <laughs> David was a skilled slinger and slingers in, in ancient times spent thousands of hours hurling rocks through the air with their slings uh, to, to reach uh, sniper-like accuracy, okay? Um, and God chose David in that moment, not just because he was full of faith in God, but also because he was prepared to accomplish the task before him. In the Bible, David even talks about this, his years of preparation in the fields, protecting his father's sheep. He says, I killed bears and lions in preparation for this moment right now. Right. Right, David had a preparation montage, and so did John. John spent over 30 years preparing for his moment. He wasn't just sitting around, doing nothing, out in the desert, eating locust chips and, and eating honey, right, doing nothing. <laughs> Waiting for God to notice him, he prepared and he grew and became strong is what it says in, in Luke chapter one, verse 80. And this doesn't happen on its own, church family. Okay, it takes preparation. I wonder how many times John must have read through the Old Testament scriptures those 30 years of his life. I wonder how many sermons he practiced to absolutely no one, just him and the animals out in the wilderness, all in preparation when you're in the wilderness by yourself, who else are you gonna talk to except yourself and God? He probably prayed so much, all in preparation for this moment. Okay, church family, do you want to seize your moment when God presents them to you? Then what does your preparation montage look like? Do you want to be used by God? Then what are you doing to prepare yourself for that moment? Now listen, I'm not saying that you have to be a skilled communicator 
or that you have to have gone to Bible college or, or seminary in order to be used by God. Listen, just simple dedication to simple faith practices like prayer, worship, Bible reading and study, service to others, those things go a really long way in the kingdom of God. Remember Simeon and Anna, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Remember Mary and Joseph, these people we've already seen in Luke so far. They all had the same two things in common that made them ready to seize their moments. Luke says that they were devoted to God and they were committed to living righteous lives. Devotion and righteousness, that's it. What about you, church family? What are you doing to prepare for the moment that God has for you? Amen? So that's key number one, all right? John had a montage. Um, The second key is this, is that he had a mission. Everybody say mission. Mission. All right, when his moment came in verse two, um, John knew his mission. He knew exactly what he was supposed to do in that moment in verse three. Okay, verse 3 says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John knew that he was supposed to help lead God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, back to him, living faithfully according to his ways. And we'll talk about how he knew what his mission was specifically in just a moment. But the point is, he had a mission, which is something that most people are lacking in our day and age. So many people today don't have a mission that they're working towards fulfilling in their life. I mean, if I were to go out on the street and do one of those man on the street kind of interviews, and I just simply ask people, hey, what's your mission in life? They'd be like, what are you talking about? Because we don't even think in those terms of what's my mission? What am I here to do and accomplish? Right? At least not for our personal lives. Sure, we hear a lot of businesses and organizations talk about their mission statements. If you've been in business school, it's like all they talk about is what's your mission statement? And some of the most successful businesses and organizations, they do, they have clearly stated missions that they're working towards. And those that are struggling, those are the ones that have either lost sight of their mission or they have no mission at all. We understand this in the business and organizational world, but we should carry that over into our personal lives too. The reason we have so much of that adult adolescence, like I talked about a few weeks ago, men who act like boys and women who act like young girls is because they don't have a mission in life. Do you know why so many grown men get sucked into and even addicted to gaming, just as one example? It's because games are mission-focused, right? You're trying to accomplish a mission or a quest, and when they compare, listen, when they compare their real life where they have no mission to the video games, which are all about mission, even though they're fantasy, they'd rather live on mission somewhere than live in their real life that has no mission at all. Do you see how powerful mission is? Right, just like God has moments for every single one of us, he also has a mission for every single one of us. Are you hearing me, church family? God has something that he wants you to do in life that is for his glory and the good of the people around you. What is that mission? Now, you might already be living your mission right now, but you don't realize the importance of that mission 
in your life, right? You, you don't view your mission as a worthy mission for the kingdom of God, and your perspective needs some shifting. Parents, it is absolutely a worthy mission for building the kingdom of God to teach your children the ways of Jesus and how to live according to those ways. Right? It is absolutely a, a vital mission for you to go to work and be an example of Jesus to those who don't know Jesus around you. That's a worthy mission. It's a worthy mission to build your home and invite people into your home to, to fellowship and disciple. One. That's a worthy mission, church family. And some of you, man, I'm telling you, you need to repent. You need to say, God, I'm sorry for not viewing that as, as a God, kingdom of God building mission. Okay, Paul says it best in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and, and 24. He says, whatever you do, everybody say whatever. whatever. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that's your mission in life. Whatever. Whatever. And what I love about this verse is that it covers both the general and the specific. Generally speaking, every single one of us as followers of Jesus, we're called to glorify God. That's it, yeah. right? But the specifics of how we glorify God, they can look different from one person to the next. And that's why Paul says in whatever you do, right? Whatever your specific mission is, as long as it's for the Lord and glorifying him and not pleasing self or man alone, then you're good. You're living on mission. And that's also a sub point to knowing and seizing your moment. Listen, really important. If your moment is all about self, and if your mission is all for self, that is not God. Right. When, when the moment that God has for you arrives, and when that moment launches you out into your mission, because it, it will, it's going to be for building his kingdom and not your own. Amen. Okay, and so, if you're waiting for your moment from God, but your focus is just on yourself and your kingdom, and then that God moment does come, and it's not self-serving or self-glorifying, chances are you're going to reject it. You're not going to seize it because it's not about you. Right? That's what happened to Israel when they got to the promised land. They were thinking about themselves only and not the bigger picture of what God was trying to do, and they missed their moment. But when your moment comes, again, it's going to launch you out into your mission. And if you don't know what your mission is, you're not going to be able to seize your moment. You're going to miss it. So church family, what is your mission? What's your mission for your marriage, married couples? What's your mission for your family? Parents, what is your mission for your children? What will you do in life that will glorify God and build his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. John had a mission. Do you see that? Yeah. Okay, the third key to seizing your moment that we learned from John is that he had a mandate. Everybody say mandate. Just want to make sure you're staying awake, okay? Mandate. All right, in verses four through six, uh, Luke, he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verses three through five. And this was a, a prophecy about the messenger who would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. Uh, this is the same prophecy, although not as many words and in a different wording, that John's dad, Zechariah, spoke over him when he was born. 
We read it again. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God because Jesus is for everyone. For John, this wasn't um, a prophecy that was just a cool prophecy hoping it would come true one day. This was a mandate from God for his own life. And if our moment, if it launches us out into our mission, then mandate is what helps us understand what our mission is. And it helps us stay on mission. You see, John recognized that he wasn't going out into the world because he just felt like it was a good idea. Right? right? He didn't go out into the world doing what he was doing simply because uh, his dad expected it of him, that it was prophesied over him. He wasn't just trying to meet his father's expectations. He knew this was his moment, not from man, but from God, and that he was being sent out into the world by God to do this. And because he received his mandate from God to prepare the way for the Messiah, listen, it helped him to know what his mission was, but it also helped him to stay on mission even when things got difficult for him. I've seen it before, especially in vocational ministry, right? People who, who that's what they do all day is, is they, they minister, whether pastors or missionaries, where people, they'll, they'll go to Bible school, they'll go to seminary to become pastors or, or ministers um, because they feel like it's just the right thing to do or because it's what was expected of them by their family members or maybe a mentor, but they didn't actually have a calling or a mandate from God to do that. And what happens when you do something without God's calling on your life is it makes it really easy to walk away from that thing whenever things get difficult and challenging. When someone finishes Bible college or or seminary and they start work in full-time ministry and they realize, man, this is way harder than what they told me it would be. It pays way less than I realized. And formal Bible education didn't actually help me at all in preparation for real-life ministry Many of those people, they have no problem just leaving it all behind and the people behind and going to do something else. And I suspect, and Miguel and I have talked about this before, that if you took many pastors and even missionaries' paychecks away, they would have no problem quitting and going and doing something else. But when someone is in ministry because they have a mandate from God, they'll often do it whether they're getting a paycheck or not. Because mandate always trumps money. Calling always trumps convenience. Okay, and that's one way to help you affirm your own mandate or calling from God is that it doesn't matter if you're getting paid or if it's convenient, you're gonna do it anyways. You're gonna do it anyway, right? If God, the creator of the universe, has mandated you for a specific moment and mission, then it must be important and it's worth sticking with it no matter the circumstances, right? Knowing that you have a mandate from God will help you seize your moment and stay in that moment. Do you hear me, church family? Yeah. Right, so John, he had a montage. He had a mission. He had a mandate. And number four is that he had a message. Everybody say message. 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 And we see his message in verses seven through nine. Okay, his message is strong, isn't it? It's direct, it's challenging, people took offense to it, it's instructional, 
And it's ultimately about who God is and God's desires for people. And when your God moment arrives, not only is God going to have a mission for you to do, but he's also going to have a message for you to share. And in that moment, you have to be ready to share whatever it is that God wants you to share. Even if it means calling a bunch of people, you brood of vipers. You got to be ready. Even if it means calling out their sins. Even if it means confronting their false assumptions and perspectives. You know what? Some of you love that idea. And you're like, let's go. Right? You don't even need a mandate from God. You're just like, Pastor Kai, tell me when and where and I'll do it. Okay? But others of you, you cringe at the idea that God might want you to share a message like that. But when we look at all of the prophets from the Old Testament, and even John and Jesus in the Gospels, when we look at the instructions of Paul and the other New Testament writers, their recurring message and theme is God wants you to be holy and live holy lives. That's the fruit that John is talking about in verses 7 through 9. Right? It's not enough that you're related to Abraham by blood. It's not enough that you simply say you believe in Jesus. It's not enough that you, you made a decision when you were a kid and that you were baptized as a kid. Right? If you're not living a holy life and pursuing holiness, your actions betray your confession. Right. And the message that we are called to share church family, is not he gets us. The message is not Jesus washed feet. The message is not Jesus loves you just as you are. Now, don't get me wrong. Are all of those statements true? Absolutely. But they fall incredibly short of the message that the entire Bible has been sharing from the beginning to end. Right? God wants you to be holy and live holy lives. God sent his son to live and die for you, not so that you can stay just as you are, but so that you can be transformed into his likeness and into his image from one degree of glory to another. If you're waiting for the moment to be used by God, you have to be ready to share whatever message he tells you to share in that moment. All right, here's the fifth key to seizing your moment. Everybody okay? Yeah. You do a little stretch. Okay, jumping jack, something like that. All right, fifth key to seizing your moment that we see in John's life is that he had a method. Everybody say method. Okay, he didn't just call them a brood of vipers. He didn't just say, hey, you're all sinners. He didn't just preach his message and then move on. No, in verses 10 through 14, what we see is that he invited and he showed people what repentance looks like. And he showed them how to live holy lives according to God's ways. Listen, he began discipling the people in that moment. If you have an extra tunic or extra food, then you need to share it with other people. Don't be a taker. Don't be a bully. Stop being so selfish. That was his central message. Right? That's the starting point of how to live a holy life, is what John's saying. We must have a method if we want our message to be effective. Okay, you can have the greatest message in the world. In church family, we have the greatest message in the world. We have the gospel. Yeah, true. Right? But if we don't show people 
the method of applying the gospel and living out the gospel in their lives, then our message will fall short and will fail to fully seize the moment. Okay, sharing a message without a method, it creates a lot of converts, but not very many disciples. Converts simply believe, but disciples, they live out their belief in everyday life. And John wasn't looking for converts. He was already talking to people who believed in God, his own people, right? But they weren't disciples. They weren't living out their belief. They were being selfish. They weren't serving one another. And so John shared the method to help them move from being simple converts to faithful followers of God's ways. And we can't just share the message. Hey, Jesus loves you. Be holy. Have a good day. Right? We have to invest in people's lives with our time, with our energy, and our resources. And we have to show them the method. Show them how. This is how you pray. This is how you read your Bible. This is how you tithe. This is how you get plugged in to a church family. And that's why our discipleship group that we started last week is so important. It's because we're trying to show everyone the method. And what's amazing is that the majority of people who started to follow Jesus, I don't know about the majority, but a lot of them, they were first disciples of John. And when Jesus called them to be his disciples, John had already prepared them and he had done what he could so that they were ready to learn from a better master. And I think that's incredible. And John was like, here you go, Jesus. Last one, number six. John was able to seize his moment because he had modesty. Everybody say modesty. In verses 15 through 17, people start wondering, John, are you the Messiah that we've been waiting for? And it wasn't wrong for them to ask that about John. Okay, he was baptizing thousands of people, some scholars estimate. He was helping God's people, the nation of Israel, turn back to him. He was making disciples, right? All these things that that ministers would love to accomplish in their own ministries. And there are many pastors and ministers in the world who've had the opportunity to lead thousands to Christ and baptize thousands of people. But there are also many ministers who've allowed that to go to their head and to go to their ego. Look what I've done. Isn't our building amazing? Look at all the people who come to our church. Look at our numbers. Look at our buildings. Look at our budgets. Look at our programs. Look what I've done. So this excitement about what John was doing and people asking if he was the Messiah, it could have easily gone to his head, couldn't it? But he had modesty. He had humility. He said, I just baptize you with water, right? But someone mightier than I is coming. I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals on his feet, right? That was the job of a servant. So John is saying, I'm lower than even a servant, right? But the one who is coming, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I share a message of repentance and turning away from sin, but he's actually going to judge sin and do something about sin in the world. I'm nothing. He had modesty. And for us right now, think about everything that we've talked about so far. Knowing your moment, being prepared, having a mission, a mandate, a message, and a method from God. All of that is pretty amazing. And even Jesus said that John was the greatest man to ever live. But all of it can be stripped away from you if you allow pride to puff you up. Pride can render 
all of those things as ineffective in a moment because the power of the mission, mandate, message, and method, it doesn't come from us and our ability. It comes from God. I don't let pride keep you from seizing your moment. And so we see these six keys in John's life that helped him to seize his moment. He had a montage, a mission. He had a mandate. He had a message. He had a method. And he had modesty. And if we are waiting for our moment and hoping to be used by God, we need to examine our own lives. Okay, am I preparing myself, being devoted to God and and righteous living? What's my mission? Is this thing I want to do, is it a mandate? Is it a a call of God on my life? Am I willing to share whatever message that God has for me to share? And am I willing to invest in people's lives? And am I able to do all of this with modesty, with humility, knowing that it has nothing to do with me, but it's all God working in and through me? And I know that sounds like a lot, doesn't it? But being used by God in those God-ordained moments is a big deal. It's a big deal. They often have earthly and eternal impact on not just you, but other people around you, their lives, their souls. And so it's important to consider all of these things that we've talked about, to seek the Lord and ask him to search your heart and reveal to you the areas of your life that might be preventing you from seizing your moment. There's also one more thing that we need to look at from John's story before we go, and that we also have to consider for ourselves. And we we see it in the final verses, verses 18 through 20. And that's his martyrdom. That's his martyrdom. A martyr is someone who dies for their witness. Martyr, in the, the Greek word witness, it shares the same root word. Right? Someone who dies for a certain cause. And John died for the cause of Christ. Yeah. He paid for his moment. And everything we've talked about so far, he paid for it with his very own life. Right? He wasn't partial with who he, he shared his God-given message with. He shared it with tax collectors, soldiers, common people, and also people in positions of power like Herod. Right? Because Jesus is for everyone. But that doesn't mean everyone is going to accept it. Right. In fact, many people are going to hate it. Jesus tells us that. Be ready to be hated for my cause. Be ready. Right? And they're even going to take action against it. And that's how Herod responded. He imprisoned first and then he murdered the messenger of the Messiah. And if we want to seize our moment, we have to be ready to count and accept all of the costs that come with it, no matter what it is. But I think John would say, if he were right here in our midst today, that it's absolutely worth the cost. Absolutely worth it. The reward is great. No, John, he didn't receive any reward from man while he was on earth. That's because he wasn't living for man. He was living for the Lord. And again, what a a reward to be known by Jesus as the greatest man to ever live. What a reward. And without a doubt, John is enjoying his reward in the presence of God right now, right this very moment. I think as Christians who want to serve and please the Lord, and that's what you really need to ask yourself. Do I want to please the Lord? Do I want to serve him? Do I want to be used by him? Right? If we're all waiting for and looking for our moments to be used by God, 
right? Knowing our, our moment is one thing, but seizing it is a completely different thing. And there's a lot that goes into seizing your moment. It's not something to be taken lightly. But if you consider all of these things and, and count the cost, you will find that there's no greater joy and purpose in life than being used by God. I'm going to leave you with this final verse from Hebrews that shows this truth, not from John's life, but from Jesus' life. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, beholding Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, everybody say joy, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, that bloody, painful, terrible thing, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and here it is, and he is right now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Church family, what are you beholding and what are you becoming? Thank you for listening. If you were blessed by this episode and would like to help us create and share more content that magnifies and multiplies Jesus, would you consider giving a financial gift of any amount today? Whatever you give will go towards building the kingdom of God in the lives of people all over the world. Thank you for your support, and we pray many blessings over you.